The gospel for this day comes from Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away to the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where the rich man was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and, you, and no one can cross from there to us. The rich man then said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to the rich man, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Creator, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In July of 2009, Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie gave a TED Talk called The Danger of a Single Story. She started with these words. I was an early reader, she said, beginning about age four. And what I read were what was available, British and American children's books. I was also an early writer, stories illustrated with crayon drawings that my poor mother was obligated to read. The stories I wrote were exactly the kind of stories I was reading. All my characters were white and blue-eyed. They played in the snow, they ate apples, and they talked a lot about the weather, how lovely it was that the sun had come out. All of this despite the fact that I lived in Nigeria, had never been outside Nigeria, we didn't have snow, we ate mangoes, and we never talked about the weather because there was just no need to. What this demonstrates, I think, she said, is how impressionable and vulnerable we are in the face of a story. She goes on to talk about how stories shape our deepest thinking about one another, every encounter we have with another person. She talks about coming to college in the United States, where her American roommate, upon learning she was from Africa, as the roommate said, asked her to play her tribal music and was shocked when Chimamanda put on a record of Mariah Carey. 
the roommate had a single story about Africa, that it was full of people who were poor, nations that were fractured and violent, places that were doomed to disease and famine and primitive life. Mariah Carey did not fit her single story. Chimamanda talks about her own middle-class household growing up, how her mother always referred to a young boy who worked in their house as poor Fide, so that his being poor was the only thing she knew about him. She knew that her family sent their old clothing and extra food to his house in a rural village not far away. One day, she and her mother visited Fide in his home, and his mother showed them a beautifully patterned basket that his brother had made. In that moment, she said, I was startled. It had never occurred to me that anyone in Fide's family would make something. All I had heard about them was that they were poor. So it became the only way I could see them. Their poverty was my single story of them. How vulnerable we are in the face of a story. I bring all of this up for two reasons. One, Jesus was a storyteller. When people asked him a question or brought him a conflict or a problem, when they wondered who he was and what he was doing in the world and how they could be a part of it, he hardly ever gave them a command or a straightforward answer. When people asked Jesus a question, he generally did one of two things. He asked a question back or he told them a story. I think he knew what Chimamanda Adichie is telling us, how deeply stories shape us, for better and for worse. But the second reason is for this particular story that Jesus is telling us today, about a rich man who is dressed in fine linen of the, of the best purple and feasts sumptuously every day, and another man, a poor man, living with sores on his skin and hunger in his body and virtually invisible to the world around him. Once upon a time, there was a rich man and a poor man. Now, we're given a few additional details about the rich man. Some of this isn't immediately evident in English translations, so I'll tell you because it's good to know that the Greek words that are used to describe the rich man's clothing, that linen and purple, and the kind of feasting that he does apparently every day are all words that would normally be used to describe priests on high religious holidays. Except that the linen that priests should wear to serve the people of God in the holy sanctuary, this guy just wears to his dinner table because he can. And his feast, I mean, think about having like a Christmas Eve meal every day, right? His feast doesn't honor the Sabbath. It just turns every day into an opportunity for him to indulge. If learning that makes you feel even less empathy for the rich man, good, it's supposed to. This is a dramatic story. Every major religious tradition and the Roman culture, the secular culture in which Jesus is telling this story, expected people who were rich to be generous with people who are not. This guy is clearly set up to be the opposite. To use a technical theological term, 
he is a jerk. <laughs> now, about Lazarus, the poor man, we learn very little. And what we learn comes primarily from the rich man's perspective. It says, at his gate. So that's the rich man's gate in front of his house. At his gate was a poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus is hungry. He suffers with sores. Only the dogs are his company. But we do know that the rich man is aware of him. How? Well, as they say, eventually the bell tolls for them both. They die. Lazarus goes to the bosom of Father Abraham, comforted after a life of agony. The rich man goes the opposite direction, in Hades, where he is tormented. Let's go back for a minute to the power of a story, especially the power of a single story. To know only one thing about someone, or to see them through only one lens. To see the whole of their lives and all the complexity that make up every one of us through just one thing. What does that look like? Well, in this story, it looks like a rich man who from the actual bowels of hell still thinks that Lazarus's main job is to do what the rich man tells him to do. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. There's two important things about that. One, the arrogance is stunning. And two, did you hear what he says? Send Lazarus. The rich man knows his name. For years, I used to think that the rich man just didn't see Lazarus, just didn't care about him, just walked past him every day like he was invisible, didn't know anything about him, willfully chose to ignore this guy laying at his front door. But I was wrong. The rich man does see him. He does know he's there. He even knows his name. But he does not see Lazarus's full humanity. To the rich man, Lazarus is only a prop an object, someone to be managed and ordered around. Because the rich man has a single story about Lazarus. He's that poor man at the gate. That's it. How vulnerable we are in the face of a story. Have you ever had something in your house, uh, concrete, say, or tile, develop a small crack? Maybe a wooden breadboard for the sidewalk in front of your house. Sometimes the cracks stay small, but more often than not, water seeps into them. Let's say it's a sidewalk outside your house or your apartment, and it, it cracks over time, and then rain gets in it, and the rain freezes in the winter and pops the crack open further. Pretty soon, the crack is wide enough to catch the heel of your shoe, or the dog's toenail, and then dirt gets in it, and it widens further. Once it starts, it's hard to stop. Father Abraham tells the rich man that between them, between the heaven and hell in the story, is a great chasm, 
so that anyone who wants to pass from one side to the other cannot do so. That sounds a lot more like the Grand Canyon rather than a crack in your sidewalk, except that most awful things start small. Most of the great chasms between us start with the danger of a single story, of seeing each other only in part, through only one lens, in only one way, poor, rich, homeless, popular, immigrant, old, young, white, English-speaking, foreign, Republican, Democrat, quiet, Muslim, gay. Now, some of those identities are built into us from before we were born, and some we develop over time. But none of us are only one thing. None of us are a single story. And every time we treat one another as if we were, a little crack develops. And when we do it again, the water gets in. Pretty soon the crack grows. Dirt finds its way there. It expands. We stop listening to, to each other. The crack begins to trip us up. We stop seeing each other. It becomes a gap. We stop caring. And now it's a chasm, a great fixed chasm that feels as if no one could ever cross it. I invite you to pay attention this week, to listen to the ways that you yourself describe other people, often without meaning to. Listen to the ways that news stories, what you're reading and interacting with, books, movies, music, even conversation with another person might fall into that chasm of a single story. It's such a small thing, the way we describe each other. But every chasm starts somewhere. I suspect the one between the rich man and Lazarus started the first time that the rich man walked past Lazarus and thought to himself, why does that guy get a job? Or, ugh, smells. Or, perhaps worst, the first time you walked by and didn't see Lazarus at all. And it grew and grew and grew until the rich man had built a hell for himself at his very own dinner table, missing every opportunity to feast with a fellow child of God who was sitting right outside his door. I don't think this is actually a story about life after death. This is not a story about whether you, yourself, or any of us are going to go to heaven or hell. This is a story about the life we live here. And I think that because the story ends unfinished. It ends with an invitation, a reminder that we have the power in this life to build chasms, to widen them, and the power to cross them. You don't need me to tell you that the chasms in our world are deep, and brutal and pervasive. And it would be easy to throw up our hands and assume there is nothing to be done about any of them. They are so fixed, there is no way across. You think about a chasm in your family, in your neighborhood, between political parties, between our visions of the future as a nation. 
We have built chasms with money and privilege and power and fear, and we've widened them with hatred and ignorance and greed. Whatever crack they started with is so far down there, we don't even know how to find its origins. But if we think we might have had something to do with it, it's so painful, we don't really want to think about it. Except that those of us who trust in a God who chose to enter the deepest chasm of all, the deepest fear we carry, the worst of the ways that we ignore and harm each other, we cannot let a chasm get the best of us. I'm going to leave you with the words of another wise writer who says this. Remember that this story is for us, not against us. For when we succeed in cutting ourselves off from each other, when we learn how to live with the misery of other people by convincing ourselves that they deserve it, when we defend our own good fortune as God's blessing and decline to see how our lives are quilted together with all other lives, then we are the losers. Not because of what God will do to us someday, but because of what we have already done to ourselves. The best thing about this story is that it is not over yet. For the rich man, yes. But not for us, because we are the five brothers. Even though Father Abraham would not let Lazarus come back from the dead to tell us the story, Jesus has sneaked it out for us. So now we have this, and Moses, and the prophets, and someone who rose from the dead, to convince us that it is true. All that remains to be seen is what we will do about it.